The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. I think the question that everybody needs to ask themselves is, when was the last time a day flew by? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversations with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So there's a snippet I heard from Marcus Buckingham when I first got curious about positive psychology, and the snippet helped it really sink in for me. Marcus paraphrased from the founder of positive psychology, Martin Seligman, who said in 1988 that psychology is half-baked, that we've baked the part about mental illness, disease, and damage. But the other side, the one about strengths and what makes life worth living, has been ignored. At the time, there were about 40,000 studies on depression and less than 400 on joy. We thought that excellence was the opposite of failure, so we studied divorce to learn about marriage. We studied unhappy customers to learn about the happy customers. We assumed to get good, you take bad and invert it. But what Marcus says is if you study bad and invert it, you just get not bad. So what do we do now to fully bake the other side of psychology? Marcus Buckingham has a lot of ideas. He's one of the world's top researchers on strengths and leadership at work. He's written 10 books, including two of the best-selling business books of all time. He's been on The Today Show, The Upper Winfrey Show, and featured in probably a lot of the publications that you're familiar with and read. Marcus's new book is about love and work. Now, I've talked to so many people who felt unfulfilled at work. And if you think that's totally normal or fine, consider that you'll spend over 90,000 hours of your life working. Now, I used to have dreams of finding purposeful work but felt too scared to really believe in them or to leave really comfortable situations. It can feel much safer to brush off a dream than to consider the possibility that you'll believe in it and it won't materialize. I also thought that finding meaning and love at work meant I had to love every single moment. It was an incredibly all-or-nothing perspective, and my expectations were brutally high. And it turns out they're also wrong. So if you're wondering about fulfilling work and what it's supposed to look like, know that there are ways to create work that you love. Not just in your 9-to-5, but in all the work that you do. It may not be 100% of the time, but there are clues everywhere, and Marcus is going to tell us how. So... When was the last time a day flew by? Every single one of us has innate and totally unique patterns of things that they love and things that they loathe, things that nourish them and things that that deplete them. And their loves are, those activities that they love are a fantastic clue, a gateway, if you will, to all of that beautiful uniqueness. And one of the best clues to what you love is when you vanish inside of an activity so that you're not doing it. It is coming from within you. So when was the last time a day flew by? If every single one of us from the age of about 11 were taught that discipline of thinking about when time flies by, thinking about when you're in your zone in that way, flow, as Mike Chekshamahai called it, if we can start getting kids to learn that discipline 
how amazing would that be as adults as we think about trying to build a life that's a first-rate version of our own as opposed to a second-rate version of somebody else's. But if you can start taking that seriously and honoring where that is, you're in a much, much better position to take control of your life and indeed to mold your job, to fit yourself better, or perhaps find a new role. Mm. You mentioned flow, which was what I was thinking too. And I'd love for you to explain a little bit of what that is. It, it reminds me of the moment in the movie Soul when they show how, you know, different people vanish into their own activities. Can you talk a little bit about that so people can pin it down? I loved that movie. But yeah, first of all, every single one of us has this incredibly unique pattern of synaptic connections in their brain. Massively unique. I mean, so massive. We have more synaptic connections in our brain, a hundred trillion, a hundred trillion by the time you're 19. That's more connections in your brain than there are stars in 5,000 Milky Ways. That is the full extent of your unbelievable uniqueness. And you are completely different from the person even that you grew up in the same house with. And out of that uniqueness comes certain activities that you seem to vanish into, certain activities you instinctively volunteer for, certain things that you pay attention to that you remember that nobody even bothered to pay attention to, let alone remember, but you did. There's a pattern of very specific things that you could probably remember when you were nine or 10 or 11 or 12. You can remember things where you were just like, I'm in my zone, to use a cliche. And when we are in our zone, it could be as silly as I, I love the difference between a toad and a frog, or I loved reading the back of cereal packets to look at the adverts they put on the back there. And I'm fascinated by it. it. It's the silliest, daftest, most banal stuff. But all of us have this weird pattern of things that we love. When we're doing something that we love, or when we're paying attention to something that we love, our brain chemistry changes. And we actually get the same chemical cocktail in our brain as you have when you're in love with someone. It's a weird combination of like oxytocin and vasopressin, uh, norepinephrine, anandamide too, when you're doing something which is like awe and wonder. And what they think happens in your brain that is flow, what it seems to be doing is it's dysregulating your neocortex, which is the part of your brain dealing with sort of goal orientation and focus and narrowness. It dysregulates that, opens your brain up, which is why measurably, weirdly, when you're in love, you perform cognitive tasks more uh, effectively and more accurately. You retain information more accurately and vividly. You're more empathetic. You're more resilient. Same's true when you're doing things that are in this zone. And it's a broadening and building that happens when you're doing something, some particular activity that you love. Your mind is opened up for new configurations and new connections and new insights. That's what you knew when you were nine when you were doing things that you loved. That's real. And the big tragedy, frankly, is that you have 10 years of geometry in school. You don't have 10 years on how can you find out what are those moments that you love and then turn them into contribution. You don't have that discipline, but that discipline does lead you to be more creative, more effective, more authentic, more powerful, frankly, more attractive. And that's what we now know about that state of flow. Wow. So I'm 34 years old and I didn't learn about flow until I was 31. Um, and so even hearing you say that is like, whoa, you know, even to be someone who I can honestly say I have found the states where I'm in flow most, I, I understand them now, but to have gone 30 years without that seems insane. It is extraordinary, isn't it? Because what the world of work would really want is people who are self-aware enough to manage their own career, who are self-fluent enough to be able to describe to other people on their team 
where they can be relied on the most, where they learn fastest, perhaps even on the flip side, be able to talk about when they freeze and when they're like a deer in the headlights and the IQ drops so that they don't have to pretend to be perfect, but that the team can come together to be complete because each person on it isn't. That's really what the world of work wants, people with some self-mastery and self-fluency about flow or about love and what you love. We don't teach any of that. I mean, as I put in the book, I was talking to my daughter the other day, who wanted me to parse the difference between a parallelogram and a rhombus. And you go, wow, she's 16 and she's got, she really has had a decade on geometry. Somebody took geometry really, really, really seriously. But all the things that I was just talking about the world of work wanting from her, self-mastery, self-fluency, being able to use life to educate you about what you love and how to contribute it, she got nothing on that, like zero. Maybe she learned about the theory of relationships, or maybe she learned about the theory of creativity, or maybe she learned about the theory of how people make decisions. But she didn't learn about how she makes decisions, how she builds relationships, how she is creative. All of that amazing 5,000 Milky Ways of uniqueness that lives in you, it lives in me, lives in her. We just abdicate responsibility for helping her figure out how life can teach her about her own uniqueness. So she'll get to your age, she'll get to 34. And it would be a real surprise, frankly, if anybody helps her learn to speak her own love language fluently. We just don't do any of that, which is so weird because the world of work would absolutely want that. It's just that we've got an ecosystem of education and parents and school that think that all learning should be outside in. Anything from the inside out, who are you, Leah? What do you lean into? When are you most attractive? When do you feel like you are completely in your zone or when you feel self-efficacy around tasks that seem to stump other people, you're like, uh-uh-uh, I'm in flow. All of that is really interesting for you and it's really useful for everyone else and you get nothing. We don't take people's love seriously. Actually, it's a bit worse than that. We tell them their loves aren't real. And the institutions that are supposed to reveal that which you love, like work, like school, actively try to hide you from yourself. Why do you think that is? What do institutions gain from us not stepping into this amazing personal space of self-mastery? Well, we get predictability and conformity. So we think that if we could define what you should know in order to get a perfect grade, and then we measure you on that grade, um, then what we should do is we should basically teach everybody to know the stuff that you need to know in order to get the perfect grade, because the point of school is to get you with a good GPA so that you can go, like your uniqueness actually becomes kind of annoying for school. And then you go into the world of work and it's equally annoying because, I mean, you work for a great organization, obviously, but you, if I peel the onion on your HR practices inside LinkedIn, I would bump into lists of competencies where every salesperson, let's say, is supposed to have this list of required competencies. Well, what that basically means is from that point on, Leah, we're gonna measure you against a model. And we're doing that because we think it's more efficient. And therefore, who you uniquely are becomes an impediment to us getting you to be efficiently delivering the outcomes we want. That's why they do it, because your uniqueness, frankly, to companies feels overwhelming. And it also feels like it's in the way. 
I mean, it isn't. All of those assumptions I just said are all wrong. They're all wrong. But they inform everything we do in schools. Not everything, but an awful lot. Mm. And they inform an awful lot of what is considered today to be cutting-edge human capital management practice. So if we're stepping away from conformity and we're stepping into self-mastery and into love, I heard you you mention, and you mentioned this in your book, Love Language. How can we get better at discovering our own love language? Yeah, well, first of all, your lesson is a good one. You took your own love seriously. At some point, you were making good money. Everything was ticking along, but it was, to use the analogy, it was like the uh, on an old vinyl turntable. It was like the record was spinning on the turntable, but the needle wasn't touching the grooves. And many of us have had that feeling. You got it at, I don't know exactly how old you were, but 28, 29, 30, yeah. 29. Many of us feel this. 28, 29, 30 are really tough years because you're not where you need to be yet and it's not new anymore. So at that point is when you start going, is this me? And so the first thing that people need to do is take seriously that little voice inside you going, this doesn't feel like me. I don't care how much money I have in the bank account. If I get to the end of my life and I've realized that I never really had a deep relationship with myself, what a flipping tragedy that is. So first of all, take that seriously. You do have an unbelievably filigreed and massively complex pattern of connections in your brain, and they do lead you towards some things and away from others. They lead you to draw energy from some things and to feel depleted by other things for no good reason other than the you-ness of you. That's the first thing. The second is we don't need to do what we love. Like We don't need to boil the ocean, if you will. There's no data that says that you've got to do what you love. There's vanishingly few people that say they love all that they do. What we do know from highly successful people is they find the love in what they do. So that's the second thing to know is you just have to find certain activities every day though, every day. What are the activities this day that are going to lift me up, that will give me energy? In a sense, we ought to change our relationship with our life where normally we think about life as something to withstand. You wake up in the morning and it's like, what do I have to get through today? What didn't I get done yesterday that I have to get through. If we could turn our brain around and go, no, wait a minute. Every day, life's actually trying to put on a show for me. Like, da, 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 da. Like, so I'm kind of trying to put on a show and say, how about this activity? How about this one? How about this? How about this? And what it's really saying to you is, which of these do you love? Seriously, even a little bit, which do you love? Because we do have data that show that the most successful people don't love all that they do. But the threshold seems to be north of 20%. If you get 20% of your job every day, though, that is activities that you love, you are far less likely to burn up. We know this from Mayo Clinic research of doctors and nurses particularly. You get below 20%, you're in trouble. And it's not like if you're 40% doing what you love, you're twice as resilient. Or 60%, you're three times as resilient. The data doesn't show that. It actually shows 20% is kind of like a threshold. So... The analogy here would be like your day is filled up with lots of threads of a, it's like the fabric of a day, a fabric of a job with many different threads of activities. Some are black, some are white, some are gray, some are brown. They lift you up a little, they're down a little. But some of them are these red threads, activities that really feel like you sing, like you vanish, like you get into that flow state. That's really what a red thread is. And the Mayo Clinic research would simply say, you don't have to have a red quilt. You have 20% of your day be red threads. So that's the second thing is that life is trying to show you these threads. The third thing would be, what are the clues? 
to those threats. And the three most obvious ones would be, what do you find yourself instinctively volunteering for? Second, what do you find yourself doing where time flies by and you vanish? Third, what do you find where when you did it, you're not drained by it, you're not emptied out, you're actually, when you've done with it, you actually feel lifted up. Three really obvious clues, but they're happening for you every day. If you can pay attention to those red threads, the data that we have say 73% of Americans say they have a chance to maneuver their job to fit themselves better. 73% of us. 27% of people think I'm utterly in the wrong job. I'm climbing the wrong bloody ladder. And by the way, they should go, wait a minute, I'm having days upon days upon days of no red threads at all. Okay, take that seriously, just like you did, which takes some courage. But a lot of us, 73% of us would be able to go, well, actually, I just haven't stopped and, and really thought every day about what red threads should I attend to. And because we don't pay attention to it, it, it withers, as all things do when they're ignored. So okay. for some of us, for many of us, it could just be start off by looking every day for these red threads, for these clues. And then maybe you don't have to change your job. Maybe you just have to make sure that you are deliberately tilting your world toward these activities every single day. We're going to take a quick break. And here's what I want you to think about. Life is trying to put on a show for you so you can figure out more of who you are. The mistake that we can all make is ignoring that show. So find the moments that you love, those moments where you truly vanish. Those are your red threads. And if you can identify them and turn them into contribution of some form at some level, you'll create more love for yourself at work and you'll inspire others to do the same. When we get back, Marcus gets deeper into the force of love and some of the surprising things research has shown about how we can find it in whatever we do. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, I'm Michael Kovnat, host of the Next Big Idea Daily. The show is a masterclass in better living from some of the smartest writers around. Every morning, Monday through Friday, we'll serve up a quick 10-minute lesson on how to strengthen your relationships, supercharge your creativity, boost your productivity, and more. Follow The Next Big Idea daily wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with Marcus Buckingham. Now, I've been following Marcus's work for years. As I said, he's one of the first people who really opened my eyes to positive psychology. So I couldn't help but ask him one of my favorite questions. What is this all for the sake of? Here's Marcus. Love is a force. And like any other force of nature, it needs to be expressed. If you don't express it, it doesn't stay neutral. If you block it off, it will burn you up from the inside out. A really positive emotion like the love of an activity that you're doing. If you don't get a chance to express it, it will destroy you. It will turn you into a husk of yourself. So in a sense, what we're doing it for on one level is because in order for you to live healthily, you have to 
people talk, talk about work-life balance, which is, if you think about it, a terrible metaphor. Nothing healthy in nature is balanced. Everything healthy in nature is moving. Mm-hmm. So all of us have to move through our lives in such a way that we get nourishment from the motion so that we can keep moving and keep contributing. If you block that off, then it's not just a squishy thing where it's like, oh dear, sorry. It's like a psychologically super damaging thing where the thing that isn't expressed now eats you up from the inside out. And we've got tons of evidence of that bad set of outcomes. So we're doing this so that we can move healthily through life and make contributions. It's not love for narcissism's sake. It's love so that we can contribute and then we can respond to our own contribution, see its detail, which informs our love, which informs our contribution, which informs our love. And then lo and behold, you've got this beautiful infinite loop of your loves turning into contribution and your contribution informing that which you love. Okay, anybody who's got someone in their life where they look at them and go, gosh, I wish I could be like her. What you're really responding to is that authentic, ongoing, day-to-day, seemingly banal link between that which they love and that which they get to contribute every day. That's why we're doing it, because we would all be so much better if we could take our own self seriously. I love this idea of taking our love seriously, and I also wonder what you make of you know, there's a recently a post on on LinkedIn that was talking about normalizing, letting people admit they're just working for money and not to make it deeper than it needs to be. And it went viral, which is why I bring it up, because I went, wow. Um, and my take on it was, well, you can normalize what you're optimizing for in a specific job. There are points in your life potentially where you're saying, shoot, you know, I've got to take care of someone an adult, an elder, whatever, at this point, I need to take this job for now, but this isn't going to be forever. But I want to know what your take is on this. Like, how do we talk about this in a way where people aren't naysaying it and deciding that it's a total crock? Well, it goes back to the beginnings of positive psychology. If you study burnout and you think you're going to learn about resilience, that's as daft as studying divorce and think you're going to learn about marriage. You study divorce, you learn a lot about divorce. You learn nothing about marriage. You study burnout, you learn about burnout. You learn nothing about resilience. If you study people that are burned out, you actually discover, of course, that they hate work and that work's boring and stressful. And if it's boring and stressful, we should try to give you as as much respite from it as we can. So that's why in hospitals, we put yoga rooms next to operating rooms or or meditation rooms next to ERs. And that's why at the moment we've got this movement to go from five days a week of work to four days. Because, hey, look, we've designed this really loveless, boring work, and then we are surprised that you hate it. And so our solution, rather than going, well, let's study people that are super resilient, we go, well, let's give you as little of this awful experience, which we've designed lovelessly. Let's make it five days a week to four days a week, because it really is depleting and distressing. If you did it differently, you'd go study resilience. You'd study thriving, resilient, engaged people. And what you would find out, whether they're housekeepers in a hotel, or whether they are maintenance workers in a factory, or whether they are salespeople for LinkedIn, you go study the world of work through the lens of people that love it, and you see an entirely different view of work. These people that are thriving, they find nourishment in work, they find identity in work, they find expression in work, they find creativity in work, they find life in work. And I don't just mean your job, by the way. Work is anything of value you're creating for somebody else. So by the way, if you have to find uh, a way to care for a relative who's sick, that's work. 
If you're taking care of a kid, that's work, that's contribution. So in all parts of our life, you've got to try to find love in what you do. I've got two kids, but I'm a totally unique dad. What I get a kick out of in terms of being a dad is completely, utterly unique to me. But if I don't get any love out of, if there's no red threads to me being a dad, um, I will get burned out from being a dad. Same with a mom, same with a friend, same with political activism, faith, whatever it is that's part of your life, there better be red threads in it. But one of those aspects clearly is, is your job. But in order to know where we should move to, let's not accept as normal loveless work. I mean, if you interview great housekeepers, the first thing I ever did was interview the eight best housekeepers at Walt Disney World while I was at Gallup. And Disney had assumed that everyone hates housekeeping and that we should design it really like conformity-wise. Here are the six things you have to do or the 26 things you have to do. And probably everyone will hate this job and we'll try to get people promoted out of it as quickly as they can. But as, as part of the work that we were doing, we interviewed the eight best housekeepers and they loved it so much so that they didn't want to be promoted out of it. And you start asking these housekeepers, what do you get a kick out of with this job? They didn't know each other. They were all different nationalities, spoke different languages, but their stories were so cool. Like one person loved vacuuming themselves out. Of, I can still remember this to this day, vacuuming themselves out and the, and the straight lines on the carpet was what, just for whatever daft reason, give them a kick. That gives me a kick too, by the way. <laughs> right, some people are weird like that and you're one of them. Somebody else liked to make little scenes with the fluffy toys on the bed so the kids come back and Mickey and Minnie, her arms on the remote control and his arms in the empty French fry container. And the kids think all day long, they just hung out snacking and watching TV. And you're like, and now that there are rules that says you shouldn't touch more of the guest possessions than you need to to clean the room. So, some of them sat on the toilet or actually climbed in the tub because they loved the idea of seeing the room the way the guest sees the room. They would, the last thing they would do is lie on the bed and turn on the ceiling fan because that was the first thing that the guests would do after a long day out in the parks. And, and they would only know the room was clean if the dust didn't come off the top of the fan. Well, none of that was, I mean, there was rules in place saying don't lie on the bed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I was going to so, say, I might feel a little weird knowing that now, but I'm sure worse things have happened in a hotel. <laughs> well, yes. But what's cool about that, Leah, is you're looking at a job through the lens of people that love it. And your whole vantage point then changes as you look at that work. I'm not saying we can't design boring, mistrustful, condescending, crappy work. We can. In many places we do. People don't get enough funding. They don't get enough bathroom breaks. They get surveillance software on their computers or whatever. We can design work like that. And then some of us have to suffer in it. And that's bad. But the idea that we should accept as normal, that you won't ever really derive identity, purpose, authenticity, love from your job, what a tragedy that would be. So see, this is your 10th book. And I'm just curious, like in your work, if you look back at what you've done so far, what do we need to know that you've learned about love, about work, about self-mastery? Can you tell me in just one bullet point? <laughs> it would be the power of human nature is that each human's nature is unique. That's not a bug that we should try to fix. That is not an error that we should try to eradicate through schooling or through competency models, 360-degree feedback tools, or feedback of any kind, frankly. Trying to get you to conform to a model should not be our modus operandi. Our modus operandi should be, oh my word, Leah, 
you've got an unfathomably complicated, unique human nature. We need you to have a deep relationship with it. And we need to help you figure out how you can contribute it. Because when you die, it will never happen again. And this isn't me waxing lyrical about some idealistic thing. That's just biological reality. And your brain is not endlessly plastic. It can grow more synaptic connections during the course of its life. But we also know that your brain will grow the most synaptic connections where you have the most pre-existing. So your unique pattern actually becomes more distinct over the course of your life through learning. I want people to know that that's worth being deeply curious about. And if you push on the word difference, the beautiful thing about the word difference is that it's abundant and it's not threatening to anyone else. I can be different from you and that doesn't take away from your difference. It's something that we don't give our kids a language for. And so we demean uniqueness. And as a result, we get much more psychologically fragile individuals. It's like you don't want people to wake up when they're 34 and you go, I'm a stranger to myself. And I'm a stranger to myself because I'm living a life in which I don't even know how to speak my own life's language. Ah, Let's try to get the 21-year-old to understand that the power of human nature is that your nature isn't like anybody else's, even your brothers or your sisters. And it never will be. And that's so cool. Yeah, you're reminding me of, of there's been so many moments in my life where I felt different. And I've always had this challenge of wanting to fit in with a group. And, you know, you talk about in the book, you know, the, the way we identify with experiences can both be supportive, but can also help us alienate ourselves from ourselves because we're not connecting to our own unique experience. And so this idea of, you know, and not that there's anything wrong with this, but the idea that the only mm. way to build community is around either the color of your skin or your religion or the work you do, um, any of those things alienates us from ourselves because we're stuck in this little tiny space that we it's basically becomes a monolith, right? And so we're all trying to fit in with each other instead of, you know, deciding where do I belong? And that was the biggest challenge for me. And I've seen it in so many people as they're leaving their jobs or trying to figure out if they can leave their jobs is it's this feeling of, well, I don't belong anymore. Like the system's purging me, you know, and it's, it's a loss. It's grief. Yeah. I mean, we could go on about this, but it's the source of prejudice begins with alienation from self. And I'm not suggesting we're too idealistic here. We live in a complicated world with multiple sources of identity, but the one that's least attended to at the moment really is just your own relationship to yourself. Well, and I mean, this number one being your most personal book, but also after you having done this for 20 years, I do hope that this is a book that reaches people and that this conversation reaches people at an early point in their life where they can say, wait a minute, I'm going to pump the brakes and make a shift and, you know, start to belong to myself and understand who I really am and then make decisions from a more conscious place of here's all of me. Now, how do I build my community? How do I approach my life versus here's one piece of me. It is the way I'm going to approach my life because of that piece or that identifier. I'm going to have you complete these three statements, Marcus. Better humans are. People who are deeply curious about that which they love because that then leads them to be deeply curious and respectful of the distinct loves of other people. Better work is. Work that finds that beautiful link between the activities that you love and your ability to contribute them 
valuably to other people. That's what work should feel like. The most intelligent, the most beautiful, the most coherent expression of your unique self. And a better world has. Lots and lots of people within it who know that their unique mark in the world is no better or no worse than anyone else's, but that it is beautiful in and of itself. If we had a world like that, we'd have a more generous world as well as a more creative and a more productive world. I love that. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That was Marcus Buckingham, world-renowned speaker and best-selling author. His latest book, Love and Work, is out now. One big thing before we go, and it's probably pretty obvious, don't give up on love and work. It doesn't have to be perfect. You do not have to be 100% happy in every single moment. But your work can be authentic to you. It can be meaningful to you, and you deserve that. If today's show helped you on your journey, leave us a rating before you go. And even more helpful, write a quick review. It helps other listeners like you find this show and grow with our community. And you can also find me on LinkedIn, writing about human potential. Send me a message to let me know how this is resonating with you. I'd love to chat. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Michelle O'Brien with help from Scott Ulster. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Ediando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming on the journey with me, and I'll see you next week.